Hey, business owners, need help taking payments online? Well, there's a whole world of transactions powered by Elevon. Whether it's through payment accepting, customer connecting, real-time reporting, round-the-clock supporting, fraud detecting or business protecting. <gasps> Elevon supports all payments for your business. To get started, visit elevon.ie. Elevon, your world of payments. Elevon Financial Services DAC trading as Elevon Merchant Services is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. The Big Tech Show brought to you by Elevon. Elevon makes payment taking simple, freeing you up to focus on your business. You take on the world, they'll take care of the payments. See elevon.ie for more. The Women in Tech podcast brought to you by 100% Electric Nissan Leaf. Hello and welcome to the Women in Tech podcast series, powered by Nissan Leaf, 100% electric. For this series, I'll be speaking to Irish women involved in tech, who are dispelling myths, breaking down barriers, and showing just what it takes to be a successful woman in tech. In this episode, I'm joined by Regina Moran, Enterprise Director with Vodafone Ireland, who is an engineer by background but never studied honours maths at school. She has very strong views about how we should talk to young girls in primary school and some interesting insights into STEM. First, I asked Regina about her career and why she left Fujitsu to join Vodafone after 32 years. Yeah, it was a really tough decision, actually, Samantha. Um, I'm, but I'm actually in Vodafone more than a year now, um, which has really flown in. I guess a couple of considerations, part of it being life cycle. Um, I've been with Fujitsu uh, almost since I left college, actually. started off as an engineer um, and I was looking, I think, to move home. I had been doing quite a lot of travelling. Um, and then I'd heard about Vodafone and obviously Anne O'Leary is a very inspirational uh, person uh, in, in Irish business. Um, so they approached me. I wasn't really looking for a job and got into the conversation. I kind of liked the purpose of Vodafone. I, I liked Anne's leadership style and I kind of liked what they stood for, actually, in terms of diversity, etc. So uh, and then the job itself seemed like a very exciting job because what I do is essentially run the business to business part of, of Vodafone. We have a consumer business and a B2B and I've always worked in B2B. So it kind of fitted with what I knew. The other part was it was a different sector. So it was an opportunity to move home and uh, be with the family more and also change sector. So everything just lined up and the timing just seemed right. And is the culture very different from where you were in Fujitsu to Vodafone? Is it quite a different way of, of working? Yeah, it's interesting actually. I probably thought it would be more different uh, before I joined because uh, uh, Fujitsu is a Japanese company but we had a lot of local autonomy always in Fujitsu so and I think as well as that from a value system point of view I think that, and this is very important to me personally there was a huge alignment in terms of what Fujitsu stood for uh, in terms of societal benefit as well as kind of economic benefit uh, and what Vodafone stood for in terms of their purpose and within Vodafone I mean the people were very similar very welcoming, very open, very friendly, um, helping, you know, somebody that's just joined. So, and, and again, they're, they're both kind of large corporates, so you have some of the same processes and governance that you have in any large corporate in both organisations. I think for me, probably the, the connectivity piece and the power of connectivity and the way connectivity is changing lives, it kind of excited me. Fujitsu probably had a, a broader portfolio maybe, um, but now that I've joined Vodafone, I realise actually on the business side in particular, we have a very broad for portfolio too. So I guess initially from the outside, I would have thought the cultures would have been more different. 
So you're talking about connectivity there and tech has moved so quickly in the last few years. But bring me back to when you first got interested in engineering. I'm sure you couldn't have imagined some of the developments that happen now. But how did you first, as a young person, get interested in engineering? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I went to an all-girls school and, and engineering wasn't really something that was, was kind of mentioned. But the neighbourhood that I grew up in, there was a lot of, uh, just happened to be my peers, were, a lot of them were boys. So I kind of liked sport. I, liked, I played soccer. Um, played basketball and and I guess I went to a presentation convent uh, school and the great thing about that education back then um, was that it was a very level education so it didn't really matter what background you came from you got a very good education and everyone was talking about going to college so the first thing I realised was I wanted to go to college um, which really wasn't in, you know, our family, people wouldn't But the peers' expectations yeah. is just part of your yeah. mindset then. And, and that was the first thing. And then I thought, well, what will I do? And one uh, evening, there was an evening talk given by Waterford, uh, RTC as it was at the time, WIT now, and he spoke about electronic engineering and the changes that were happening in terms of PCs were coming in. I'm dating myself now, but PCs were coming in and and this was going to be an explosion and it was going to there's going to be loads of jobs it was going to be great so i said god that sounds great uh, so i went to the career <laughs> guidance teacher and she said i don't know what that is <laughs> it wasn't um, the only person back then i'm sure yeah <laughs> but it was you know it inspired me enough uh, to to go actually um and and give it a go and did you know much about it i didn't know a lot about it and and in the school you know we did, we weren't taught honors maths or physics it was a girls only school um, but that so didn't hold you back, obviously. It didn't. No, and that's actually one of the, the myths about it that you have. You know, it didn't actually. It did make it more hard, more difficult, I think, when I got in, but it didn't hold me back. But I kind of felt, I, and one of the reasons that I kind of liked the, the IT, the IOT structure is you can do a certificate and then you can do a diploma and then you can kind of go on. Yes. Yeah. So I guess I felt after two years I'd have something, you know, rather than sign up for a degree course and maybe not know and have to drop out and have nothing. So that kind of step learning suited me because I didn't really know what I was getting into. And were you in the minority as a female? There wasn't that many, but actually Waterford, I think there was about 15 in the class and there was about five girls. Uh, I moved down to Cork to do my diploma and there was no girls okay. other than myself. And did you did that bother you at all? I guess because I kind of was a bit of a tomboy and I kind of hung out with the, the, the young fellas. You were just used I, to it. I was kind of used to it. But, and I do think that when we went into college, um, and I think uh, the IOT structure is very good for that. It's a very supportive environment. The class sizes are smaller. The college was smaller. And there was a lot of supports. And the lecturers kind of knew you. And they kind of would help you because I hadn't done physics. Uh, and, the, and obviously I'd done past maths. So I did need a bit of extra help. And in that environment, you got the help. So after was it was Cork where you finished your studies and got your first job? Yeah, I I went to to Cork and and it was brilliant actually uh, going from from Waterford to Cork except for it rained every day. <laughs> Waterford is much drier as I discovered, but but it was a very small class. I think there was only was there eight of us in the diploma class, um, and it was specialising. I specialised in in uh, personal computers and you know that emerging technology as it was at the time. Um, so that's one of the reasons I, I moved there, because I had a, a microprocessor uh, element to the course. And, and I got a job straight after uh, in Cork. And, so and where was that? In a company called CompuCorp, which was an American startup. 
and they made when I think about it now dedicated word processors okay <laughs> little tiny ones were they no they were big <laughs> huge PCs, they were big but, back but then, what they yeah. specialised in was being um, engineered to be really good at word processing and very fast you know now you get a package or an app or something like that but, but at the time that was but it was great because a, there was a number of people from my class in Cork went there so it was a start up uh, it was an American company so very different culture and it, we just had great fun yeah, and you obviously loved the work and loved knew it was the, the right choice for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and how did the technology progress over the years? And did you have to change your training or did you learn on the job as you went? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I stayed technical for a little bit of time, Samantha. I, I, I landed the dream job. I got a job in a company called Amdal, which made very large scale mainframe computers. Um, amazing technology at the time. We I mean, we were, there was virtual machines, all of the stuff that we hear about now, but it was it was back then. Um, and that was a very technical job and, and brilliant. We were, all, we were sent off to California. Sometimes I tell the story of, you know, driving down Highway 1 in a Mustang convertible, thinking this engineering stuff's pretty cool, yeah, actually. not bad at all. But it's a passport to travel anywhere. Um, so it allowed me to do that. And I hadn't done a primary degree, so over time I moved into management and actually instead of going back and maybe doing a degree in engineering, uh, I did a couple of courses to matriculate and do an MBA. Right. So I kind of moved more, I suppose, out of the direct technical. But the one thing that engineering gives you is a very solid logical reasoning base for solving problems. And what I found when I moved into more managerial role, that that stood to you, that having that base knowledge and that approach to problem solving. So you can kind of take it from complex, if you like, technical problems into business problems very easily. So that's why I encourage people that it's a very good initial qualification to get. Very hard to go back and do engineering, you know, when you're 30, 40, 50. But it's a great base. So it's a really good baseline qualification. And how did you come to work for Fujitsu then? Yeah, Fujitsu was actually, Amdal was actually 48% owned by Fujitsu. Um, And a lot of the underlying chip technology would have been designed uh, in Japan. It was a joint venture. Uh, Gene Amdal set up a company to rival IBM. He set up an IBM compatible mainframe um, back in the day when nobody really rivaled IBM. Um, and that's how that was a startup company and Fujitsu invested. So since 1986, uh, I've been on, I was on a Fujitsu contract, basically, because they own that. It was a bit of a roller coaster, though, because people stopped buying mainframes. You might remember the late 80s client server came in, distributed computing came in um, and the, the plant and swords actually closed down. Um, it was the only other plant actually outside of, of Sunnyvale in California. So we started up a small software and consulting company called the Business Solutions Centre. And then from there, we rebranded as DMR Consulting. And we, we is? A small group of, of engineers that had been working in Amdal plus other people with other capabilities in IT and that. So it was a bit of entrepreneurial spirit Yeah, there. and there was a guy called Martin Delaney who you know, who's kind of the brain, it was his brainchild and Amdal invested in it. You know, so a bunch of us, about 27 of us, I think, came together all total. And then we hired uh, software graduates from uh, DCU at the time because we didn't have the software engineering piece and we just started that up. Then we rebranded as DMR Consulting because Fujitsu had acquired a French-Canadian consulting company and they didn't have a presence in Ireland. So there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And then we kind of built that business back up to become kind of Fujitsu Ireland Limited uh, after merging with uh, Fujitsu Siemens back in 
2009. So it's a lot of twists and turns on the way, actually. Um, but but Fujitsu have kind of been in the, the background all of the time. So when you, you obviously knew you had a love of engineering. Did you have ambitions to become a leader? Yeah, I, I guess not maybe overtly. I don't think it was, I'm sitting there saying I, I really want to become a leader. Um, but an opportunity came up actually one, on one of the times I was out in California to lead a new team that was being set up of, of, a, of a eight to ten senior engineers. And I would have been quite junior at the time. It was things around about 27, maybe 26, 27. And I went for the job. And I guess because I went for it, I obviously was interested in leading that team, even though I didn't sort of consciously think about it. And I was a little bit of an outsider uh, in the race for the job, but I actually got the job. Um, and that kind of changed my emphasis then from being very technical to, to trying to develop other people's technical capability and kind of get jobs done through a team. Um, and Amdal, back in the day, had fantastic uh, management and leadership training courses and, you know, your ability to develop uh, your, your leadership style and all that was taken quite seriously. So I learned a huge amount from that. And how important do you think it is to have those sort of supports in place to try and bring along people's natural uh, leadership skills, which may just need to be developed and, and nurtured? I think it's it's hugely important. I mean, one of the things about, about Vodafone is they have a huge amount of support in place for everybody, for all employees, but particularly for women, you know, like family-friendly policies, return-to-work policies. We have new a new domestic abuse uh, policy that we've only just uh, rolled out. And I think organisations can do a huge amount uh, to support people uh, and maximise their potential because whatever that is and wherever they want to take it, you know, so I think it can't be rigid either, Samantha. It has to be flexible enough to take account of the individual and also the life cycle. Um, when I was younger, I loved traveling. You know, I went all over the place. I had no problem with foreign assignments. I traveled an awful lot. I think once I got married and certainly after I had my, my, my first child, you know, my needs in terms of that changed a bit. Um, so I probably needed a bit more flexibility, a bit more support. So I think organisations, um, and I do think Vodafone do this really, really well, need to think about everyone's life cycle. Another factor that's coming in now that I see is elder care. You know, so it isn't just, you know, people think about childcare needing flexibility. But as, you know, people's parents are getting older, sometimes they're in situations where they need the support for that and flexibility around that. So I think it's understanding at a, at a you know, at an individual as well as a collective, what are the life cycle demands on people? And if you want to retain talent, you really need to tap into that. Did you know female tech positions are growing 238% faster than their male counterparts? The Women in Tech podcast is powered by Nissan Leaf, 100% electric. Visit nissan.ie for more details. And one of the things about flexibility and those kind of uh, supportive policies in a workplace. In the past, they have been associated with women, their flexibility for women with children. And sometimes the argument comes up with what about if you don't have children or what if you're a man and you're not going to avail of these? Is that a very archaic way of looking at it? Should these policies support 
both both genders and also, as you say, people who have different needs but maybe don't have children. They might have, as you say, parents. So it's not just for a certain type of person, a woman with kids. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a kind, kind of a narrow view of flexibility. Um, I think you need to think, I mean, we have this idea that, you know, kind of bring your whole self to work. So that means being comfortable to share who you are and where you are in your in your life's journey. Um, you know, maybe some people have mental health issues. Maybe some people have a partner with mental health issues, you know. So I think you have to look at the broad perspective of of the challenges that life throws up. And work is such an integral part of life and people spend a lot of time in work or getting to and from work. Then if you if you can understand the whole person. Now that doesn't happen by magic though. I think you need to really work at it from a policy level. You need to work at it at a training level. Like you need to train and empower your managers to be able to have those conversations and to understand the people that work with them every day. So it's, and, and it's, it isn't just uh, what I would call a female uh, issue. It's a much broader thing. And I think it's, it's becoming more broad as our society gets more complex. And, you know, and as employers need to hire people in a close to full employment environment. Absolutely. I mean, there is a huge war for talent. I mean, we had a have a campaign at the moment, a smart working campaign. We've been working with particularly small businesses. And how can you think of differently about the ways of working? Because, you know, you talk about, you know, archaic uh, views on, on um, females in the workforce. But equally, we have quite a traditional view of work and productivity and being there and all of those presenteeism. things. Presenteeism. Presenteeism, yeah. you know. And, and actually, you know, there's an awful lot with, with technology and connectivity that can be done anywhere at any time. And I remember a good few years ago, a guy worked for me um, and he wasn't a morning person. And You can relate to that a lot of know, us. he just wasn't a morning person. So, you know, he used to, he used to rock up about half ten, eleven o'clock. And at the time, uh, the HR policy was you'd start at nine, I think nine or half eight, something like that. And, you know, there was a little trouble brewing because of this. And then I thought, I said to them, but sure, that's how he works. He'd be still there maybe eight, nine at night. Sometimes he'd wake up at two in the morning. He was a brilliant technical guy and he'd come up with an idea. But I think we have this... Rig- nine to five. Yeah, rigid kind of framework. And I think, again, we need to think differently about how we get the best out of people. And even at that level, not everybody is at their best at the exact same time every day. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. In terms of women in... Uh, technology, you've been quite vocal about younger women and, and girls getting into STEM. How early do you think we start to say, maybe subconsciously to young girls, maybe maths isn't such a good subject for you? Do you think we put that message out there? Yeah, I think it's one of those kind of, you know, you hear about unconscious bias a lot, but I think there is maybe a built in unconscious bias amongst all of us about those things. I think there is a myth that girls are not good at maths. There's absolutely no scientific evidence to suggest that that's the case. You know, some people are good at maths and some people are not good at maths, but it's at people level as opposed to gender level. So I think um, if you go into primary schools, and I've done this, I volunteered uh, with Engineers Ireland uh, in primary schools, you know, at the ages of kind of four, five, six, there is no difference if you go into a co-ed school. and then as they get a little bit older, that sense that 
there's things that girls should do and things that boys should do starts coming in. Um, even at sport, you know, less and less girls participate in team sports the older they get. Whereas if you go out and walk past any GAA pitch on a Saturday morning, you'd see all the youngsters and there's equal amounts of girls and boys. If you go to the 15, 16, 17 year olds, that won't be the case. So it's not just in, in, in maths. There's a, a general sort of streaming. And I think, first of all, we need to address that confidence very early on and instilling that confidence in girls that they can do anything that they want to be. And, and how do you do that without uh, patronising girls or filling them full? You know, there's sometimes a criticism of the American way of doing things where you can never make a mistake and it's all positive, positive, positive. Is it, is it hard to get the balance right to you can do anything versus criticism or... Yeah, I don't think it's even in, in, the, in that level. It's, it's just... You know, I think I think I probably told you this story, but in this experiment in this particular school where we we were connecting lemons up and coins to light a little bulb, and there was mixed boys and girls at each of the tables. So the experiment and test was, you know, whoever lit the little light first gets a pack of Harry Bows or, or whatever was on, on on the go. And at every single table, the boys started connecting up the lemons first. Now these probably would have been eight nine year olds, and I wondered why was that. So I had to change the rules and say, five lemons, five kids, each person's got to connect up a lemon to win. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But why did I have to do that? And that happened, you know, more than once with different groups. And that's because for some reason, people thought that was a boy's job to start connecting something up. So I think it's earlier we need to intervene. And it's not even just about conf- confidence fully or people being overconfident. It's just to believe that there's nothing to this. Take there the mystery no, away from Take it. the myth about it, you know, you know, the whole part, I was reading a few papers recently in preparation for, for, for this session about the myths and things like engineering, you know, people aren't, women are not strong enough. You need to get your hands dirty. You know, these kind of myths. Uh, women are better at soft skills rather than hard skills. You know? Like, but they become, and then if you look at stereotypes in, in even programming on TV or films and that, you'll often see the technologist is the kind of strange looking person in the corner, you know, banging away on the keyboard sort of style. You know what I mean? So I think there's there's a lot of those kind of unconscious signals that are people are being bombarded with. You go into a toy shop and there's kind of the pink aisles and, and the not pink aisles, basically. You know, so there's this kind of streaming effect happening. So if we can keep enough people, boys and girls, in the stream for longer. Because we have a challenge with not, not enough people choosing STEM full stop, by the way, across the globe. So it's not just a, a gender issue. But if we can stop that kind of stereotyping and streaming through messaging, through these type of podcasts that you're doing, Samantha, I mean, I think media have a huge role to play in, in busting the myths. I think that's dispelling the myths that, that youngsters, obviously, uh, you know, be it the home environment, the school environment, or even just on you know, social media, society. So we need to keep people in the stream for longer. Maybe 20 or 30 years ago, uh, tinkering with technology or accessing technology might have been a niche interest. You know, you don't. You, it wasn't part of your everyday life. If you had a remote control for the TV, that was great. It was a, it was a bonus. Now, every young girl and young, young boy has a device, certainly, if, if not all the time, certainly at the weekends. or So they're very used to using technology all the time. Should that demystify it a bit? Should it become, become, as it becomes more part of our lives, technology, should it mean that more girls and boys are interested in technology? Yeah, I, I, th- I think 
that should you would think that would flow through. Um, as long as people don't think that there's barriers, and we talked about the maths one earlier. Um, I remember a few years ago in Engineers Ireland, the year that I was president, actually, we ran a big event in Printworks. Um, I'd say there was a, a, almost a thousand girls, were kind of 14, 15 year olds. And it was all about, you know, choosing engineering. And a lot of these kids at the time would have had, like there's only a few years ago, you know, the mobile phones, <laughs> the, the YouTube though. But yet when we had the discussion and we had some brilliant young female engineers speak, I just did the opening, but these were amazing. Um, but you went around to each table afterwards to have a panel discussion. And the girls still felt not confident. You know, you know, I'm not good enough at maths. Came up time and time again. So I, I said, well, you know, I wasn't that great either at maths. You know what I mean? I said, you know, I didn't do honours maths. And they're kind of looking at you. How did you get into it? So the other thing is we seem to think that you have to step 100% in rather than maybe step in to a course that isn't a degree course and build your career over time. I think we have this huge pressure on the system to get everything decided at, you know, the year that you're 18 or something, you know what I mean? Whereas I think we need to be an awful lot more flexible about that as well, because that can be maybe a barrier that's just too big. So I think people use technology in ways that I couldn't have imagined when I started right now. The power that's in the hands of people with a smartphone, uh, with, you know, high speed connectivity, and, and we're just at the edge of the whole, you know, Internet of Things and sensor technology and the business models that could be, can be created there. We haven't even dreamed of them yet. So I think my hope is that this generation don't see technology as something separate in a darkened room with, you know, different types of people engaging because it's across every sector now. In terms of leadership, you started quite young to step up the ladder. Have you had resistance over the years, particularly from men, you might think, given that you were in a male-dominated field, or have you found that people have respected you as you, as you went along? I'd be really honest, Amanda, I've never felt um, anything other than respected. Uh, and maybe I've been lucky, but I've never had uh, that challenge. I've always felt included uh, in conversation. I've always felt I've been given opportunity um, and you know, since I've come into Vodafone for the last year, if I look around, I mean, it's amazing the amount of opportunity uh, that that people have. It's 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 gender neutral. There's you know it's, it, there is no no uh, gender bias whatsoever. Um, LGBT is really important as well in that environment. So it's it's kind of like whoever you are, whatever your ambition is, just feel free to realise it. And I always felt like that myself. That. You know, it's within me. The limitation is within me as opposed to within other people. And I would say to people to kind of seize that as well and, and, and in a way put yourself out there because you may be surprised that there's less resistance than you may think. They often say that women sometimes look at the qualifications that they don't have where as men don't focus on that so much and they may go for jobs that they have fewer Fewer, fewer qualifications than some of their female rivals who don't think that they're ready for the job. Do you think that sometimes women hold themselves back or is that an unfair uh, yeah, I, depiction I, I, of it? I think, I think we're right back to the early confidence building. I know you, you know you mentioned you want people to be too confident. I think we have to tackle confidence early and then I think it will flow through. So I also think, again, um, role model helps. I mean, if I look across business in Ireland now, we have people like Anne, we have Katrina in, in, you know, in Microsoft. 
and there's, there's role models all over the place. We wouldn't have had as many role models. So that should give people a little bit of confidence. I think the idea that the, your life cycle is taken into account will also give people confidence. So the fact that they may need to check in and check out of their career at different times is not a limiting factor, gives people confidence. Um, I think mentoring helps a lot. I've had some really good mentors over the years um, who you can soundboard things off and then show up maybe in a different way because you've had advice. I think you should always ask for advice. People are very willing to help, much more willing than you might think. Um, and it doesn't mean, it's not a sign of weakness, you know. So I think if you have confidence issues, you need to try and help yourself by getting help with that. Um, and then decide what you want to be as well. You know, yes, there's a career path for some people that goes from A to B to C to D, but people can zigzag. I think people, some of my best moves in my career have been adjacent roles, if you know what I mean, where it would just stretch me in terms of maybe learning a new skill. Or So I think people need to be open to what we call in Vodafone career trails, as opposed to a one career path, you know? And I think you can broaden uh, your own, I suppose, knowledge, learning, by maybe trying something adjacent or different, rather than think, I have to go from A to B to C in a straight line. Uh, sometimes the question of quotas comes up in, in organisations and there's a bit of a move towards quotas being more acceptable. Do you think it's important for there to be structures in place to try and uh, balance gender in an office place, a workspace, or do you think people should just have goodwill and that will happen? I used to think the quotas were a bad idea, Samantha, and I suppose I'm still not 100% personally convinced. But if you look at representation on boards of females, if you look at overall the number of CEOs in Ireland uh, that are female, you have to say that maybe we need to think about quotas to get the dial shifted. Because if I look at Vodafone, I suppose because Anne is so passionate about it and because the the whole organisation has worked hard to address it, we've now got kind of 50-50 at senior leadership level. Therefore, you have a whole pile of role models. It becomes a sort of a, a virtuous cycle almost. If the dial is not shifting naturally, and that's why something like the 30% club, I guess, has come into being, there's a tipping point. Beyond that tipping point, you don't need it because then everything flows. But I've come to the conclusion that you may need something to get to the tipping point. Thanks for speaking to us today, Regina. That's it for this episode of the Women in Tech podcast series, powered by Nissan Leaf 100% Electric. We'll hear more stories from Irish women dispelling myths and breaking down barriers in the tech world next week. And don't forget, you can also catch up on all the latest insights and interviews from the tech world with Adrian Weckler on The Big Tech Show on independent.ie, Spotify, SoundCloud and Apple and Google Podcasts. I'm Samantha McCochran. Thanks for listening. The Women in Tech podcast brought to you by 100% Electric Nissan Leaf.